Well, it's uh, great to be here, visiting from uh, Canada, and good to see you all here so keen again. And uh, I'm actually delighted to be part of the uh, lineup of the, for this uh, Azraim curriculum, an auspicious lineup of uh, speakers. I did ask Bob why they'd included me in the lineup, and they actually said that it was because I was the best-looking apologist in Azraim outside of Amy and Stuart McAllister, apparently. So, <laughs> anyway. That's the only reason I can think I'm involved, but nonetheless, the subject for today is the uniqueness of Christ, and it's a massive one. It's very difficult when you start looking at a subject like this to think, how can you cover such a vast amount of material in such a short space of time? We're going to do our best to cover what we can. We could take almost any aspect of the life and character of Jesus and spend a volume, write a volume discussing it. How do you narrow down and focus in on a life such as his? There have been a number of people, actually, who have tried to do so. I love a quote found in the work of Napoleon Bonaparte during his uh, imprisonment and 20-year exile. He spent that time making a detailed study of Christ, and these were his conclusions. From first to last, Jesus is the same, always the same, majestic and simple, infinitely severe and infinitely gentle. Throughout a life passed under the public eye, he never gives occasion to find fault. The prudence of his conduct compels our admiration by its union of force and gentleness. Alike in speech and action, he is enlightened, consistent, and calm. Sublimity is said to be an attribute of divinity. What name, then, shall we give him in whose character we united every element of the sublime? I know men. And I tell you that Jesus is not a man. Everything in him amazes me. His spirit outreaches mine and his will confounds me. Comparison is impossible between him and any other being in the world. He is truly a being by himself. His ideas and his sentiments, the truth that he announces, his manner of convincing are all beyond humanity and the natural order of things. His birth and the story of his life, the profoundness of his doctrine, which overturns all difficulties and is their most complete solution. His gospel, the singularity of his mysterious being, his appearance, his empire, his progress through all centuries and kingdoms. All this is to me a prodigy, an unfathomable mystery. I see nothing here of man. Near as I may approach, closely as I may examine, all remains above my comprehension. Great with a greatness that crushes me, it is in vain that I reflect. All remains unaccountable. I defy you to cite another life like that of Christ. Now that's what it took the European leader to, to uh, fight, come to some conclusion about the person of the Lord Jesus. There's so much here, there's so much to consider. It's important, though, that we remember when we're considering the uniqueness of Christ, before we get into some of the detail, that the way in which you and I might articulate that information and that evidence to people concerning his uniqueness is going to be viewed by the people to whom we speak through a certain set of lenses. And I find this critical, whether I'm involved in open forums or debates or just one-to-one -one evangelism and apologetics. Remembering that the interrelated presuppositions that people have, which constitutes their worldview, the way in which they look at the world, will to a large degree determine what they do with the evidence for the uniqueness of Christ. The faith of a lot of people rules out a priori 
an interpretation that will lead to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God, no matter how compelling the evidences you may present will be. For example, you might produce all kinds of powerful evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament and take the the miracle of the raising of Lazarus as one example of Jesus' uniqueness. But if somebody has has a dogmatic faith position that asserts a naturalistic position, that is going to have to be in some way overcome because they will accept any explanation of the resurrection or the apparent resurrection or report of the resurrection of Lazarus other than that Christ raised him from the dead. This is just a fact of the challenge of doing apologetics. When we talk about the uniqueness of Christ and any event associated with his life, we are not simply disputing an isolated fact, an isolated event, a miracle, uh, a prophecy here or there. We are actually disputing an entire view of history. What is in dispute is the entire meaning of history. Every aspect of the life of Christ when we take it as a whole, ends up redefining history itself. And so when we ask people to accept Christ's uniqueness, we're not asking them to accept that he you know, turned five loaves and two fish into a meal for 20,000 people or more. We're asking them to accept a total reinterpretation of the meaning of history, and I'll come to that shortly. As a broad generalization, uh, the, I like to consider the progress of Western history in, in particular as being reflected by three key themes. In, in the ancient world, people tended to inc- uh, discover reality or come to conclusions about reality through world encounter. They encountered the world as the representing the activity of the providence of God, the changing of the seasons, seed time and harvest. They encountered the world and their technology reflected it. The use of the plough was a very simple piece of technology that illustrated a worldview that understood God's providence to overall history. And offerings were made of grain and so forth, the produce of the harvest, in recognition of God's providence over history. It was world encounter. The modern era brought about a shift in the way in which the world was viewed. It became an era of world viewing. Some identify the beginning of that really as being with Descartes. People began to see themselves as autonomous, independent from God, able to define reality outside of God and his sovereignty and his providence, and took as their ultimate point of reference the human mind as opposed to God and any revelation that may be available from God. And this mood was illustrated by the development of technologies like the telescope, world viewing. It was actually accidentally discovered, the telescope, in 1608 by the children of a Dutch spectacle maker, Hans Lippershey. And then it was developed, refined, and then trained on the skies by the Christian uh, scientist, Galileo. But it marked uh, a shift, this modern era marked a shift, worldviewing and also dissection through the microscope became not the pursuit of seeking to understand God's works and providence in history and quickly became something in which human beings were seeking the conquest of nature and a comprehensive knowledge over it. Cut off then from that transcendence, that uh, sense of the sovereignty and providence of God over history, we soon realized that People's perspectives differ. As we view the world, we can't view it completely. We can't view it comprehensively. And if people are all looking at things from different views, after uh, Immanuel Kant and his 
Copernican revolution in philosophy, self-styled, it became an issue of the mind, the human mind, now imposing structure and order on reality, as opposed to it being God's order and structure on reality. And so the postmodern, or I prefer ultra-modern context in which we now live, has moved us from world encounter through world viewing to now world making. We construct the world in our own image. Truth will be what we want it to be. Reality will be what we want it to be. It will shape itself to service our consumer needs. And the technology reflected in, uh, today in that development is, of course, cyberspace and virtual reality and digital fictions because we are now the makers of reality. Those, that uh, train of thought, I think, particularly where we are now as world-making, is the challenge, part of the challenge that we have to overcome in communicating the uniqueness of Christ. And for many, when we bring this person of Christ to the fore in apologetic conversations and engagement, it's our view, it's our perspective. That may be the way we read the person of Christ, but there are other equally legitimate interpretations. Nonetheless, my personal experience has told me, taught me, I should say, that there is no more powerful line of argument than a presentation of the person of Jesus. Because he is so singularly unique, including the historical facts about him, I know that I would not be a Christian today were it not for the person of Jesus. I doubt I'd even be a theist if it were not for the person of Jesus Christ. How did Jesus see himself? Let's begin there, with the claims of Jesus. Obviously, there's not a great deal of point in considering the uniqueness of Christ if he didn't consider himself unique or singular. Did he really see himself as any different from anybody else? If he didn't, then it's just our theological imposition upon the gospel narratives. It was a development, perhaps, of the early disciples that began to see him as divine. Well, the primary source of information that we have about Jesus, as you know, is the New Testament. And in a few places in this course of this lecture, we're going to identify some of the reasons we can be confident in the account given to us of the life of Jesus, although we will not repeat material that may be covered in other sessions. The writers of the Synoptic Gospels were eyewitnesses to the life and uniqueness of Jesus. That is what we read when we read the Gospel accounts. Matthew's Gospel now carries a very early date. In fact, I believe you can view uh, the manuscript at Magdalen College here in Oxford. What is now uh, believed to be the oldest extant papyrus fragment of the New Testament. And this document establishes that this gospel was in circulation during the time of the eyewitnesses. The uh, German scholar, Dr. Carsten Peter Theider, published his findings in 1994, dating this fragment of Matthew's gospel prior to AD 70 and possibly earlier. In his book, Eyewitnesses to Jesus, we read... It now appears that the finished gospel according to St. Matthew was also circulating in codex form at, the, at that time, that's AD 30 to 60. It could conceivably have been read and handled by an eyewitness to the crucifixion. In an interview with that same scholar in 1996, he made the following statement. What the papyrus fragments can prove is that the first records, the first complete Gospels, were copies and spread and multiplied during the first decades of the apostolic era in close vicinity to what actually happened among eyewitnesses. So, 
You could not invent the historical Jesus, he says. You might still dispute certain details if you like, but you could not dispute the basic fact of his existence and what he did. This is quite remarkable when we actually examine the evidence for the authenticity of the New Testament records. Many ancient ancient historians and critical scholars believe today that Mark was also written as early as AD 50 to 54. Luke is considered to have been composed around AD 58 to 60. And the reliability of Luke is incredibly well established. Just as one illustration, he offers 53 different geographical locations in the Gospel of Luke that have all been shown to be accurate. Luke is considered a historian of the highest rank. And even if we didn't have the gospel narratives themselves, we could reconstruct the New Testament from quotations in the books of the church fathers within the first 150 years of the events. Uh, The manuscript evidence is absolutely overwhelming. It should also be noted at this point, I think, that this is important. This is significant as against other religious biographies. For example, the uh, ancient historian Dr. John Dixon tells us, one, the earliest biography of the founder of Islam, Muhammad, was composed around AD 760, 125 years after his death, and continued to be edited for another 50 years. Two, the first written records of the life and sermons of the Buddha appeared 350 years after his death. Third, The most famous of ancient Israel's rabbis was a great scholar named Hillel, who died early in the first century AD. His teachings and stories appear in writing for the first time in the Mishnah, composed about AD 200. Nevertheless, scholars still treat these writings as serious historical texts. The Gospels were written within 40 to 60 years of Jesus' death. These establish beyond doubt that Jesus' teachings, death and resurrection, together with his status as Messiah Christ, were being taught by missionaries and committed to memory by Christians as early in the early 30s AD. Now these are important facts before we begin to identify the specific claims about Christ. Let's think about Jesus' self-understanding for a moment. Now, you only need to read the Gospels for yourselves to recognize immediately that Jesus' understanding of himself was quite remarkable. The leading Canadian New Testament scholar, Dr. Craig Evans, argues very powerfully that Jesus clearly accepted the major tenets of the Jewish faith, the authority of the Torah, but also obviously saw himself as much more. As a prophet... To begin with, Mark 12, 1 through 11. He also assumed various priestly functions. He declared people clean, Luke 7, 22. He declared them forgiven, Mark 2, verse 5, Luke 7, 47. As well as challenging temple policy and the ruling priests of the time. He referred to himself critically as the son of man, alluding back to Daniel chapter 7, and this was one of Jesus' favoured self-designations, the Son of Man. It's obvious that Jesus, in this reference to himself, considers himself as one who is coming to restore and establish the kingdom of God. He claims to be the Messiah. In fact, the disciples themselves refer to him as such in Mark 8, verse 29 through 30. And when John the Baptist asks if he is the one who is to come. Jesus' response is filled with allusions to Isaiah 35 
and Isaiah 61. We have the blind man calling out to Jesus as the son of David, another messianic designation. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, like Solomon, the son of David, had done in Mark 11, 1 through 7. And when the high priest asked Jesus if he is the Messiah, perhaps the most categorical moment in the Gospels, Jesus unequivocally answers in Mark 14, 61 through 62, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One. And above his head is placed the inscription, the King of the Jews, in Mark 15, verse 26 and 32. So Jesus clearly understood himself in this light, but he also understood himself to be the Son of God. When asked if he's the Son of the Blessed One, he gives that categorical answer, but he also makes some astonishing claims about his pre-existence. In John 8, we have that remarkable encounter where Jesus tells those who are engaging him in dispute that before Abraham ever existed, I am. A very self-conscious reference back to the time of Moses. He claims to be the way, the truth, and the life. We read in John 14, he forgives people's sins, he accepts worship, he performs miracles, he challenges his accusers to find fault with him in John 8, 46. He's sinless. These are the things that Jesus understands to be true about himself. Add this to the fact that Jesus makes these remarkable claims about the coming kingdom of God. Anybody who said the things that Jesus said and was not God would obviously be guilty of blasphemy, and that's precisely what he is accused of in the New Testament. That's how he saw himself. How did others see him? How did other people see Jesus? Well, we have friendly and hostile witnesses, of course. The friendly ones are from the early church and some pagan and Jewish sources who are more hostile, but nonetheless report important things about the person of Christ. In terms of the uh, biblical evidence, Craig Evans, Dr. Craig Evans sums it up this way. Ongoing archaeology and ongoing discovery and study of ancient documents will continue to shed light on this old story. Thus far... These discoveries have tended to confirm the reliability of the Gospels and disprove novel theories. I suspect that ongoing, honest, competent research will do more of the same. From the very earliest time, though, believers accepted these claims about Jesus. They accepted the divinity of Christ. They accepted the self-designations that he made about himself. This was not something that the, the church developed much later as has sometimes been argued. The Gospel of John has been unanimously regarded as of being, almost unanimously, we should always add that academic caveat, of being written somewhere between AD 80 and AD 90. And very clearly he records the testimony of John the Baptist, who knew Jesus longer than any of the disciples, and he says, I have seen and testified that Jesus is the Son of God. Friendly witness number one. But then we have early church fathers, outside the New Testament, in the very early years of the Christian faith, who make similar confessions. Ignatius, the church leader in Antioch, died as a martyr in the Colosseum in AD 110. And in his epistle to the Ephesians, he repeatedly, repeatedly refers to Jesus as God. Polycarp, who lived AD 69 to 155, was Bishop of Smyrna, disciple of the Apostle John. And he says... Now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the High Priest himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, build you up in faith. Irenaeus, 
125 to 200, a disciple of Polycarp, in his work Against Heresies, speaks about the relationship between the Father and the Son. And this is what he says. For with him were always present the Word and wisdom, the Son and the Spirit, by whom and in whom freely and spontaneously he made all things, to whom also he speaks, saying, Let us make man after our image and likeness. And then Justin Martyr, AD 110 to 166, a great Christian early church apologist, tells us, Our Christ conversed with Moses under the appearance of fire from a bush. He goes on to refer to Jesus as angel and apostle, who is also God, yea, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am that I am. So we have this powerful early church testimony to the uniqueness of Jesus. This was not a theological amendment of the 3rd or 4th century, but something that was believed by the earliest believers. And then we have the testimony of pagan and Jewish uh, writers of the period who were hostile to Christ. And yet, some of the things that they say lend a great deal of support to the New Testament account. Cornelius Tacitus is perhaps the most famous because he was the greatest of the Roman historians. He lived between AD 56 and 120, and in a remarkable passage from his annals, laced with an anti-Christian venom, he tells us something about the death of Christ. I quote, Christians derived their name from a man called Christ, who during the reign of Emperor Tiberius had been executed by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. The deadly superstition thus checked for the moment broke out afresh not only in Judea, the source, first source of the evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world meet and become popular. He's obviously not particularly favorable towards the faith, but nonetheless, we can see critical endorsement here of claims made in the New Testament. Pliny the Younger is another very important early reference, AD 61 to 113. He was an administrator stationed in Bithynia, what's now northern Turkey, wrote lots of letters, many of them were published, and in AD 110, he writes to the Emperor Trajan to ask about the Christians and whether he should continue executing them or not. And he sums up the content of his interviews with them with these words. The sum total of their guilt or error was no more than the following. They had met regularly before dawn on a determined day and sung antiphonally, that is, uh, two alternate groups, a hymn to Christ as to a God. They also took an oath, not for any crime, but to keep from theft, robbery, and adultery, and not to break any promise. And then we have uh, Lucian, who was a Greek uh, satirist. And uh, he wrote a, a work called The Death of Peregrinus, in which he pokes fun at a fraudster named Peregrinus and describes his travels among Christians in Palestine. And he refers to the founder of Christianity in this way. Uh, Lucian's dates are 115 to 200 AD. And I quote, The one whom they still worship today, the man in Palestine who was crucified because he brought this new form of initiation into the world. Moreover, that first lawgiver of theirs persuaded them that they are all brothers the moment they transgress and deny the Greek gods and begin worshipping that crucified sophist and living by his laws. Again, not a friendly witness, but nonetheless a recognition that Jesus is worshipped, recognized with this divine status. 
Finally, Celsus, AD 175, an intellectual who wrote a book called True Doctrine, where he heaps ridicule on the Christian faith, and it's actually Origen, the early church apologist, who rebuts him. And in his work against Celsus, who he quotes in full, we get an, uh, an insight into the, the mind of the Greek intelligentsia of the time. And this is what we read concerning an explanation of Jesus' miracles by uh, Celsus. He puts it down to Egyptian sorcery. Having tried his hand at certain magical powers, Jesus returned from there, Egypt, and on account of those powers gave himself the title of God. So we find this remarkable attestation in pagan sources about certain important facts about Jesus, facts that make him utterly unique in human history. Josephus, of course, is, uh, has two famous citations the uh, first century Jewish historian as well, who was hostile to the claims of Christ. There is a reconstruction of uh, a citation from Josephus. It has thought to have been tampered with uh, uh, by certain copyists, but historians believe they've reconstructed uh, the original. There are differing views about that. But let me quote it to you. At this time, there, was a ma- uh, there appeared a wise man, Jesus, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of the people who received the truth with pleasure, And he gained a following both among many Jews and among many of the uh, the Greeks. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out. There's another passage, though, which is not considered uh, to have been tampered with by historians, where the treatment of James, the brother of Jesus, is touched on. Uh, and I quote, but this younger Ananus, this is uh, the high priest, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, the so-called Messiah Christ, whose name was uh, James and some others. When he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them over to be stoned to death. So Josephus gives us an account both of the life, something of the life of Jesus and something of the martyrdom of James, the brother of Jesus. My final example, because I don't want to torture you for too long with these citations, is from the Jewish uh, Talmud. And we have a couple of important references to Jesus here in the uh, Sanhedrin. The dates for this are around AD 100 to 200, and we read this report that the Jews offered about the execution of Jesus. On the eve of Passover, Jesus was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed and led Israel astray. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of Passover. Now historians are very skeptical about the announcement this Uh, heralding of Jesus' execution and so forth. But importantly, it does recognize information that's given to us in the New Testament about the eve of Passover and the death of Jesus at that time. In fact, we can gather, in summary, a whole raft of historical facts about Jesus from these non-New Testament sources. Christ's name, the time and place of his public ministry under the reign of Pontius Pilate, his mother's name, the ambiguous nature of his birth, 
the name of one of his brothers, his renown as a teacher appealing to the masses, his notoriety as a wonder worker or sorcerer, the title Messiah being applied to him, his divine status to some, the manner of his execution, the involvement of both the Jewish and the Roman authorities, the superstition of the resurrection, and the rapid growth of this movement, all identified in external sources. And I think these are critical to an an appropriate understanding of the uniqueness of Christ. Let's consider, though, for a moment, the comparison between the claims that Jesus makes and the claims of other religious traditions. Because one of the most obvious objections that comes up when we talk about the claims of Christ as Messiah, as Son of God, as the truth, as the pre-existent one and so forth, is that various other religions and various other prophets and teachers make similar claims. What is really that unique about Christ? Question mark. First of all, it's based uh, on an ignorant presupposition that religions are basically fundamentally the same but superficially different, when in actual reality, when you look at the founders, when you look at uh, the scriptures, when you look at the evidence itself of what these founders said, we find instead fundamental differences and only superficial similarities. How often have you heard it said, your Jesus is so like Buddha, or Christianity has so much in common with Islam and so forth? Let's consider the uh, world faiths for a moment. Let me begin with this thought. The idea, this is very important to note, I think, of revelation from God, of revelation from a personal God, is actually, I think specifically, a Christian idea. It is a uh, biblical idea that's only common, really, to the Jews and Christians. Beyond that, it applies to cults and copycats of the Christian faith. Islam, Mormonism, and so forth, where copies of revelation are made, where essentially uh, uh, claims are made that ostensibly embrace the authority of Jesus, but then modify or surpass it after Christianity, or, in other words, they're Christian heresies, or there is no revelation from a personal God. And I think this is very important for us Christians to realize The doctrine of revelation from a personal God is a unique doctrine. What other claimants to being God? A personal God. What other revelation from God? There's a very good reason for this, of course. Other faiths do not have a sovereign creator God who is interested in the lives of his creatures outside of these copycats who copy Christian revelation. There is no God in these other faith systems who transcends time and history. Buddhism... Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism. They're the writings of gurus, philosophers. They're speculative. Founders are striving for enlightenment. They don't believe in a personal creator God who has revealed himself into history, who has spoken authoritatively into history, who can prophesy about the future. That's why this doctrine of revelation that is uh, common to Christianity and Judaism does not exist in these other faiths. We read ethical teaching, mythological stories expounded by only by authoritative gurus, as in Hinduism, but their goal is knowledge of an impersonal, ineffable principle that underlies nature or the universe or its enlightenment and escape from an infinite cycle of reincarnations and so forth to join an impersonal Brahman, oneness. 
In fact, in Hinduism, in classical Hinduism, you are God. You don't need revelation. You just need self-realization that you're God. These are very, very important distinctions. From the claim where Jesus says, before Abraham existed, I am, finds no parallel in other religious traditions. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father but through me, he who has seen me has seen the Father, how do you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, from John 14? Jesus, we've seen, claimed a a sinlessness for himself, forgave sin, healed the sick, raised the dead, claimed equality with God, the personal God of Abraham. What do we find in these other traditions? Well, let's take the Quran as an example. What do we read about Muhammad's self-understanding? We read in uh, Surah 6, 50, Say, I do not say to you, I possess the treasuries of God. I know not the unseen. And I say not to you, I am an angel. I only follow what is revealed to me. In Surah 18, 110, we read, Say, I am only a mortal, the like of you. It is revealed to me that your God is one God. Surah 575, They do blaspheme who say, God is Christ, the Son of Mary. But said Christ, O children of Israel, worship God, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with God, God will forbid him the garden and fire will be his abode. We have no virgin birth. We have no miracles beyond the dubious moving of a mountain and military conquests. A man born six centuries after Christ, in his 40th year starts receiving visions accompanied by violent convulsions. Islam formally begins when he flees Mecca to Medina followed by 10 years of unremitting military warfare and his return to Mecca to establish his rule and his death some two years later. No hope of salvation is offered beyond guidelines of possibly pleasing Allah. He violates his own laws of plundering caravans on their way to Mecca. He is a polygamist, exceeds the number of rives prescribed by his own revelations. The claims then of Muhammad are a world apart from the claims of Christ. What about Confucius? Let's go from something from the East, Oriental. This school of thought rests on the teachings commonly attributed to Confucius, BC 551 to 479, and his teachings emphasized gentlemanliness, uh, humaneness, kindness, and so forth. And in his Analects, we read the following claim concerning himself. The Master said, As to being a divine sage or even a good man, Far be it from me to make any such claim. As for unwearying effort to learn and unflagging patience in teaching others, those are merits I do not hesitate to claim. Isn't that fairly different from the claims of Christ? Or the master said, give me a few more years so that I may have spent a whole 50 years in study and I believe that after all I may be fairly free from error. In the scriptures of Jainism, we read, The Lord abstained from frequent speech. He uttered a few words, if and when necessary. If somebody asked, who is there inside? He would respond, it is I, a monk. Not a great deal of help there, I would suggest. Jesus' claims are singular. What of Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, 563 to 483? Well, he rejected, as you know, the superstitions of Hinduism, or at least what he viewed as superstitions. 
And his uh, sayings, or the sayings attributed to him, were written down about 400 years after his death from food poisoning in uh, 480 BC. And that wasn't an illusion, obviously. He rejected rituals and uh, occultism of uh, Hinduism. And he developed what is essentially an atheistic faith in its character and content. The goal of, uh, of uh, religious practice was freedom from suffering and the illusion, in fact, of the self. His Four Noble Truths taught that suffering is caused by desire and it can be overcome by the eightfold path of religious education and moral principle. The goal is not knowledge of God or heaven with God. What sought is escape from reincarnation into nirvana. And nirvana is that state where suffering and desire are eliminated by the realization that the self is an illusion. In classical Buddhism, Buddha is not even revered as divine, although there have been various revisions and various adaptations of Buddhism, he is not considered uh, divine. In contrast to his denial of the continuance of the self, Jesus says to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ is world-affirming, person-affirming, reality-affirming. In the Buddhist scriptures we read, and I quote, monks, an inquiring monk learning the range of another's mind should make a study of the Tathagata so as to distinguish whether he is fully self-awakened or not. Lastly, Hinduism. 300 million or so gods, a varied group of religious traditions that are very, very difficult to pin down, resting on the teaching of the Vedas and the Upanishads. And it's dominated by a monistic view of reality, although there are some differences, in, profound differences in Hindu theology about personal identity and so forth. But the general goal is understood again to be a liberation from this cycle of reincarnation and the transmigration of the soul. You can't understand the Hindu scriptures on your own, whereas we're told that we can read the scripture and understand it. In Hinduism, you need a guru, so gurus are often deified, and worshipped after their death. We're all familiar with karma, that whole notion of the accumulation of our words and deeds, which governs reincarnation. And liberation occurs when one expands one's consciousness to an infinite level to the realization that the self is the same as Brahman. In other words, you have to realize that you are God. There's no identifiable revelation from an infinite personal God to human beings. There are no ultimate distinctions. Hindu people find themselves at the mercy of numerous gurus teaching profoundly different things. In the uh, Bhagavatam, we read the following, and I quote, one gopi in reference to one of the most famous quasi-historical figures in Hinduism, Krishna. One gopi said, do you know that when Krishna lies on the ground, he rests on his left elbow and his head rests on his left hand. He moves his attractive eyebrows while playing his flute with his delicate fingers, and the sound he produces creates such a nice atmosphere that the denizens of the heavenly planets who travel in space with their wives and beloved stop their airplanes, for they are stunned by the vibration of the flute. The wives of the demigods who are seated in the planes then become very much ashamed of their singing and the quality of their musicianship. Not only that, but they become afflicted with conjugal love, and their hair and tightened dresses immediately loosen. To remove my glasses at that point and <laughs> scratch my head. 
Is there anything in these so-called revelations, these so-called scriptures that compares to the claims of Christ? He is utterly singular. What the temple guard said when they went to arrest him, no man ever spoke as this man did is true. And we see it when we try and make any kind of comparison. The Bible is a revelation from a personal God about our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has come to reveal the exact representation of his image, of his being. And that is what we encounter. We can't leave this uh, section before at least touching on a couple of contemporary clowns, charlatans, and other claptrap <laughs> that is current in Western consciousness at the moment. Jesus stands out very clearly, very obviously. It doesn't matter which comparative world scripture anthology you read that tries to tie them all together. He stands out in his claims as singular. Given that Jesus stands out so clearly in history amidst all other voices calling for allegiance... If we can't bring other faiths up to his level, we have to bring Jesus down. And that is precisely what works like the Da Vinci Code are trying to do. Other faiths clearly can't be elevated to where Jesus is. So we have to reduce Jesus somehow in our context to where they are. Reduce him to legend, fable, invention. Various high-profile populist efforts have been attempted in this. All you need is a fertile imagination, a truth-suppressing Vatican, uh, a couple of conspiracy theories, and you're ready to write a best-selling book about Jesus, it seems, these days. Michael Bajant, Richard Lee, Henry Lincoln have done this in their book, The Holy Blood and Holy Grail, which was the source for the, to my mind, ridiculous Da Vinci Code. The utterly false nature of these and related claims is exposed, I think, brilliantly in Dr. Craig Evans' book, Fabricating Jesus where he reveals how these authors all depend on documents that can't be corroborated or they've gone missing or they can't be seen by experts and so on. Uh, Dr. John Dixon, the ancient historian, identifies in one single para in, in a, a two or three paragraphs of the Da Vinci Code in a speech by Teabing, one of the main characters, no less than ten historical errors. And yet we find, and I just heard on the radio today, that this was the best-selling uh, novel of the year. Last year, obviously. These false claims include things about Constantine and the canon and additional gospels and the Dead Sea Scrolls and Nag Hammadi manuscripts, the Vatican, Jesus, marriage, and so forth, dealt with much more ably uh, by uh, Amy. But nonetheless, this is what Evans concludes about this hokum history, and I quote, Common to this hokum history and bogus findings are eccentric approaches that, co uh, that competent trained historians find utterly implausible. Legends, rumors, forged documents, hoaxes, and psychic intuition hardly constitute the stuff from which historical truth will be found. And that is what we find in these popular attempts to reduce Jesus to the level of all other religious claimants. Let's come now to perhaps the most important part of the talk and ask, what are the implications of the claims of Christ? We know they're resting on a firm foundation. We know they are singular and unique. We know they stand out. But what are the implications? What does it really mean? And I, I introduced this theme at the beginning. It means critically that truth, religious truth, moral truth, metaphysical truth, cannot be regarded as merely subjective. Not a matter of personal taste and preference, 
nor can truth be simply relative to time and culture and historical context. If these claims are real, then language can't just be self-referential noise. History must have an overarching meaning. It's not just that, oh yes, Jesus actually did maybe go to the pool of Bethesda because we found it in Jerusalem and heal that chap. Although that is true, its consequences are far more far-reaching than that. Acceptance of the historical, I will call him, the historical Jesus, as God's son, means re-evaluating our entire view of history. Now, the approach to history today is largely one of the existentialist. We're totally immersed in historical time. We're cut off from meaning and reality beyond this world. If this is true, then history doesn't have any transcendent meaning at all. And faith in Jesus has to be, must be explained away in naturalistic terms. But imagine for a moment that reality is this impersonal void. This vast reservoir of blind atomic necessity that many humanists today want to reduce it to. All history is then devoid of the sacred and critically it is totally depersonalized. There is nothing personal about history. Variations on this and other ideas are what undergird non-Christian approaches to history today. If Christ is who he claims to be, then the implications for our understanding of all of reality are monumental. He's both creator and he's redeemer. Because all things have come from the work of our sovereign God. The foundation of time itself becomes not time, but eternity. Not an impersonal void, but a personal God. If Christ is the creator, then the Old Testament to which he appeals to authenticate his claims is the real theodrama about human life. There really was a creation. There really was a first pair. There really was a first sin. There really was the promise of redemption. There really was the exile from paradise. The theodrama of redemption found in Scripture is therefore true. Jesus justified his claims to uniqueness on the basis of quoting the Old Testament and accepting the authority of the Old Testament. We do need renovation, renewal, new birth, reconstruction. In terms of Christ, this is the dramatic contrast we find with the humanism of our time. When we bring this proclamation of the uniqueness of Christ, let me quote for you Rosas John Rushduni, who summarizes this for us well, and I quote, The humanist faces a meaningless world in which he must strive to create and establish meaning. The Christian accepts the world which is totally meaningful and which, in every event, moves in terms of God's predestined purpose. And when man accepts God as his Lord and Christ as his Savior, every event works together for good to him because he is now in harmony with that meaning and destiny. Man, therefore, does not create meaning. Instead, having rebelled against God's meaning, having striven to be as God and himself the source of meaning and definition, man now submits to God's meaning and finds his life therein. For the humanist, the dynamics of history are titanic man as he imposes his will on, and idea on the world. For the orthodox Christian, the dynamics of history are in God, the creator. That's what the uniqueness of Christ actually means. If Christ isn't who he claims to be, then any God that may or may not exist 
is striving with you and me in the universe, trying to wrestle with its problems the same as we are. A conditioned being. In Hinduism, as human beings realize their identity, their divinity, God realizes himself. Although then somehow his identity is annihilated into one impersonal consciousness or unconsciousness is perhaps a better term. Because God is not then in control and not sovereign, not all-knowing. He can't speak a predictive word of revelation into history. He can't give us 109 messianic prophecies, distinct messianic prophecies. Because he's not the creator, he's not the sustainer, and he's not the governor of history. In the Christian account, though, God is in control. And so we read in Acts 15, verse 8, in the authorized version, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. He's not a prisoner of time and space. If we take these claims of Christ seriously, then there is an infallible truth revealed in the person of our sovereign creator who has become a human being. Without Christ, we're helpless creatures who cannot transcend ourselves. That's subjectivism. We can't transcend our age. That's relativism. And we have no truth beyond the human mind the individual human mind, and that's solipsism. You see, if Christ is not unique, where we are left? If we deny Christ, we don't liberate ourselves, as most people think, we imprison ourselves without hope and without God. You see, Christ says, doesn't he, in the revelation of the apocalypse, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the source of time is eternity, and actually, time moves from future to present to past. Not chronologically, but logically. Known unto the Lord are all his works from the foundation of the world. The future in the plan of God becomes the present. And this doesn't involve determinism, but I haven't got time to cover it. We've got ten minutes. Becomes the present. The present becomes the past. For the humanist, it's exactly the other way around. The source of the future, the reservoir, if you like, of time. For the humanist, in an evolutionary thought, it's the past that is determinative. Time ever flows from this original chaos by blind necessity. It's determined the human present. We are slaves and products of natural forces. And so the disjunction between animal, beast and plant progressively breaks down. We're deconstructed into a void. Understand the child through the animal. Get down and mentor your toddler by grunting like an animal. That's the counsel of a lot of psychologists today. And yet Acts 17, 26, Paul tells us, My, uh, determ- God has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 31, 15, My times are in thy hands. Rastuni summarizes effectively again for us, and I quote, For the Darwinist, history is the product of impersonal biological forces. For the Marxist, the forces are economic. For the Freudian, psychological and the unconscious. Not only is the meaning of history depersonalized, but man is depersonalized as well. Man begins by asserting the supremacy of his autonomous mind and reason and ends up in total irrationalism. When man makes himself and his reason God over creation, he destroys all meaning in creation, and leaves himself a chained, gibbering baboon sitting in terror on a wired electric chair in the midst of a vast universe of nothingness. I put it to you that that is what the world looks without the uniqueness of Christ. 
In contrast, listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews. God in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Of the Son, he, that's the psalmist, says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They will perish, but thou remainest. And they will all become old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up. As a garment they will all be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. The psalmist said that of the sun. There's numerous ways then in which we seek to authenticate and substantiate the authenticity of the uniqueness of Christ. That's the project of apologetics. That's what this whole series is meant to be about. I wish I could speak about all of them, but I can't. There's external support. We've looked at some of those, historical, textual. There's internal support. There's the prophecies that so impressed Pascal in his Pensee, which he devotes such a large chunk to, and so impressed Augustine, uh, biblical scholars have identified 456 messianic passages. 558 references to ancient rabbinic writings support these. And of those, about 109 are distinct messianic prophecies that the Messiah would have to fulfill. 109. The probability of one person fulfilling just 20 of these by chance is less than 1 in 1 quadrillion, 125 trillion. Just 20. And you read the New Testament and Jesus fulfills the messianic predictions of the Old Testament. These are not post-dictions. We know that. They couldn't have been written after the event. We know that the latest the Old Testament was complete was two to three hundred years before Jesus' birth because we know the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament by those 70 scholars, was written, most uh, Hebrew scholars hold, uh, scholars of antiquity hold, uh, much earlier. In fact, must have existed at least 100 to 150 years before the Greek translation was begun. So 250 to 400 years before Jesus was ever born, 109 specific, detailed, distinct prophecies. There's archaeological evidences that uh, could be turned up ad infinitum that have continued to establish and support the claims of the New Testament. Finally, perhaps most importantly, there are various metaphysical and epistemological supports that can be offered. And that's what apologists do when they start comparing worldviews and they look at the uniqueness and the claims of Christ. What do they mean? And then we look at the claims of other religious perspectives, whether secular humanism or Hinduism or Buddhism, and internally critique those other perspectives. And the last one standing, the one that makes reality intelligible, the one that explains human experience, the plot line that has explanatory power, to make it enable us to understand ourselves is seen time and again to be the Christian worldview. Let me finish with this. Are there any pointers for a Christocentric approach to apologetics? I think apologetics should always establish the priority of Jesus. I think actually our apologetics should rest primarily on the person of Christ. The metaphysical abstractions have their place. 
but the person of Christ is the most compelling argument. Over the, the last um, uh, 10 years as an evangelist and as an apologist, I've been involved in numerous open forums and more recently numerous public debates in universities. And no matter how good or how bad my arguments have been at these different times, the, the most persuasive line of argumentation is always the person of Jesus. When we are confronted by the person of Christ, something overwhelms and compels us. I found this even in evangelistic and apologetic efforts, efforts in the Islamic world. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, the 17th century, brilliant apologist, scientist, philosopher, has maintained that the best direct evidences for the Christian faith were the life and miracles of Jesus, the historic witness of Moses and the prophets, and their fulfillment, the holiness of Christ and his law that has this uncanny ring of truth and gains the assent of people's consciences. Listen to what Pascal wrote, and I quote, Jesus Christ is the only proof of the living God. The only God, we only know God through Jesus Christ. Without his mediation, there is no communication with God, but through Jesus Christ, we know God. All who have claimed to know God and to prove his existence without Jesus Christ have done so ineffectively. In him and through him, we know God. Apart from him and without scripture, without original sin, without the necessary mediator who was promised and who came, it is impossible to prove absolutely that God exists or to teach sound doctrine and sound morality. Jesus Christ, therefore, is the true God of men. You know, Pascal uh, Muggeridge said was the, the, one of the finest minds Europe has ever produced. He was acquainted with all the uh, sophisticated arguments for God. And in all of that, although he valued much of it, he saw that the person of Jesus was where we needed to center our apologetics. He was following, actually, his mentor, the inimitable Augustine, who offered very similar advice. Augustine believed that faith, in a very important sense, preceded arguments because faith is the gift of God and we seek reasons to strengthen our faith and grow in understanding. He believed that the beginning point of apologetics was the authority of the incarnate Christ, which led always and invariably to true understanding. There was no understanding for Augustine available to men and women, no true understanding without faith, in the person of Jesus. He didn't minimize the role of evidence. He didn't minimize the role of argument. In fact, if you consult the works of Augustine, and they are manifold, uh, you find that he was br a brilliant persuader, a brilliant apologist with an incredibly wide reach. And persuasion and reasoned arguments is one of, his, uh, one of the best tools in his bag. Nonetheless, he recognized, despite his fantastic argument for truth, for example, for the existence of God, which was later picked up and developed by Anselm and others, he recognized that apologetics, ultimately, our knowledge of God, our confidence in God, began with the person of Jesus. In one of his apologetic works, The Advantage of Believing, he gives us a very helpful pointer, I think, in approaching apologetics. What B.B. Um, Warfield has referred to as Augustine's golden chain is found in this following quote. So he who brought the remedy that would kill corrupted morals established authority with miracles, won belief with authority, held the masses with belief, endured through the masses, and made religion strong by enduring. A healthy dose of uh, Augustinian rhetoric there. But nonetheless, he's got this order. Miracles. 
The life of Christ, the person of Christ, the compelling nature of Christ, the authority that, that he established then in the lives of the early witnesses. Confidence in his, in his authority. Then faith in the authority of Christ and his apostles and his church. The enduring witness to the present, the present day, the continuity of the apostolic witness. It begins and ends, he says, with the person of Christ. I conclude with this thought from Augustine on the uniqueness of Christ for us. Take Aristotle, put him near to the rock of Christ, and he fades away into nothingness. Who is Aristotle? When he hears the words Christ said, then he shakes in hell. Pythagoras said this, Plato said that. Put them near the rock and compare these arrogant people with him who was crucified.